Jesus' name, amen. In October of 1529, two Protestant leaders met in a castle in Marburg, Germany. They were there to debate the specifics of what Scripture actually taught about the Lord's Supper. On one side was Martin Luther, the well-known German reformer, and on the other side was Huldrych Zwingli, the Swiss reformer. Now, while Luther taught that Christ was truly present in the bread and the wine in a unique way, Zwingli taught that these elements were simply symbols meant to remind us of Christ's unique death on the cross. Now, both men rejected the Roman Catholic view known as transubstantiation, which strangely believes that the bread and wine, those physical elements, actually are transformed into the flesh and blood of Jesus during the Eucharist. But nevertheless, they disagreed with the Roman Catholic Church. They also sharply disagreed with one another. One writer tells us that Luther despised Zwingli's view. He believed that it gutted the power of God's promise to to forgive from the sacrament. Before the debate, uh, he said, I would rather drink pure blood with the Pope than mere wine with Zwingli. (laughs) Wow. Whoa, yikes. And, if, and that comment reflects how the actual time together went. Boy, did the sparks fly during that time. It's known as the Marburg Colloquy. The Marburg Colloquy. But let's leave that disagreement. Let's leave that disagreement and consider another disagreement from church history. This one is actually preserved for us in the pages of inspired scripture. So you're there, Acts chapter 15. That's where we find this, this other disagreement. Acts 15, look at verses 36 through 41. Now, before I read those verses, what we need to know, what you need to know before reading this, and what you may remember from the reading plan two weeks ago, is that Acts chapters 13 and 14 record for us what has traditionally been called Paul's first missionary journey wasn't just Paul, was it? It was Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. Uh, So that first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14, over the course of maybe, we don't know exactly, maybe 10 to 12 months, Paul and Barnabas had shared the good news about Jesus. They had shared about his death and resurrection, about his lordship, uh, about forgiveness of sins. And they had, in some cases during that trip, they had even established churches in Gentile, that is, non-Jewish areas west of the Holy Land, west and northwest of the Holy Land, places like the island of Cyprus, regions in what is today south-central Turkey. That's where they were. Now, listen to what the writer tells us about this duo, Paul and Barnabas, maybe a year after that first trip. They had gone back to Antioch, where they started that missionary journey. This is maybe a year later. Acts fifteen thirty six. Take a look. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, 
let us return and visit the brothers, brothers and sisters is what that word can mean in, in Greek, brothers and sisters, in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, just stop there for a minute. Don't you love that? Just that tells you something wonderful about Paul's heart. And you can hear it in his letters, can't you, when you read his letters, that he loves these people. He truly is concerned about how they are doing all by themselves out there on the frontier of the gospel work. You know, and he's thinking about them a year later, thinking, man, I wonder how they're doing. I wonder what's going on. Let's go back. Let's go back and see them and make sure that they're, they're doing okay and see if we can encourage them and build them up. Verse 37. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them, them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. A sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers there in Antioch to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, one of the best questions that we could ask at this point when we read something like this is, why? Why of all the things that did the writer of Acts, we believe it's Luke, traditionally Luke, the physician, why did Luke, of all the things he could have chosen, stories he could have chosen, why did he choose to record this difficult and somewhat depressing part of the story here about Paul and Barnabas? Paul and Barnabas, right? Who not only labored together on that first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14, but they also served together for really a number of years in the fledgling church at Antioch, one of the great cities of the ancient world, Antioch in Syria. These guys served together. They were a great team. And, and amazing blessings came through the teamwork, the partnership between Paul and Barnabas. So they had come, as we read here, to such an impasse that they couldn't proceed together in the work of the kingdom. They couldn't go out together. They didn't go out together like they had in the work of the Lord. That's how, that's how deep, how severe the impasse was between them. Pretty sad, really. But, but let's, let's take a few minutes and make sure we really understand some of the specifics here because you still may have some questions about what, what exactly was going on here. Let me mention a couple things. Number one, in terms of just understanding the text, number one, the concern over John called Mark, just traditionally referred to as John Mark, John Mark, although he's not referred to that way in the way in the Bible. Church tradition, church history has just called him John Mark instead of saying John called Mark. So, John Mark, this issue with John Mark began in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, when Barnabas and Saul, it says there that they return from Jerusalem and they bring John Mark back to Antioch with them. 
Now, we wonder, okay, who is this John Mark and why are they bringing him? What value does he bring? What, what, what is he going to do there in Antioch? Well, some clue as to why this came together may be found in Colossians chapter 4.10 where we read this. Take a look. Paul writes at the very end of that letter, he says, greet such and such, and he says, be aware of, or the greetings come from Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Oh, now we have a little more information, don't we? Okay, we understand that Barnabas and Mark are actually related to one another. They're cousins, whether through mother, father, who knows? We don't know. We don't know. They are cousins. So, Barnabas has invited his cousin Mark from Jerusalem to not only join them in Antioch, but not long after that, from the end of chapter 12 to the very beginning of chapter 13, we read about how the Holy Spirit sent apart, he said, said, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. And that work was one to which John Mark was invited as well. John Mark, they said, come along with us for this work. But it isn't long into that trip, that first missionary journey again, from Acts 13 and 14, that first missionary journey, it isn't long into that trip that we read this in Acts 13, 13. Take a look. Do I have that verse? I do. Look what it says. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos. Paphos is on the south side of Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. They're going around now. They're going up straight to what's today Turkey, the country of Turkey. They're going up there. They set sail from Paphos on Cyprus and, and they sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, south central Turkey today. But the verse continues, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. We're given no other details except John left them. John ditched them, took off, gone. Number two, in terms of some specifics about this passage. This disagreement, and it's important to point out, this disagreement was not doctrinal. They were not, there was not a sharp disagreement over what they believed in terms of their doctrine. Okay, does that make sense? Essential core doctrine. This was not a disagreement about that, but it was a serious disagreement. Our main text makes it pretty clear that John Mark did not part ways with them during that first trip after they left Cyprus. He didn't leave them because he was called away on another assignment. We don't get that information, right? He wasn't called away because he had become sick or injured and could not continue with them. He wasn't called away or back to Jerusalem because a loved one was dying back home. No, 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 it's none of those. Look back at chapter 15, verse 38. Look at your passage. Paul's reasoning here is that it would not be best. It would not be a good idea. It would not be prudent. It would not be wise. It would not be advisable to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. He ditched them. He took off. It's pretty obvious John Mark had deliberately left that first mission for reasons that were less than stellar. We don't know what those reasons are. Was he scared? Was he bored? Was he upset he wasn't doing more? When do I get to preach? Oh, 
You know, we don't know what was going on with him. We have no idea. But what Luke is telling us here is that Paul believed Mark had already proven he was not a reliable missionary partner. It would be foolish for them to take, to spend the resources, right? Bring another person on the team, spend the financial resources to to fund a trip with, with somebody who might again just bail on them at even maybe even at a critical time. But Barnabas disagreed. He disagreed. Maybe he sensed that Mark had matured in the intervening time. Changes were taking place in his life. Maybe he believed that a second chance would help his cousin get past that first failure. Maybe he believed that he needed a kind of do-over. Whatever the reason, Barnabas felt strongly enough about the matter that he was willing to part ways with Paul in order to take John Mark with him. You know, we see both of these things still in the church, don't we? We do. We really still see this. You've got your Paul types, right? And, and they, man, you, got, you want those guys on your team because they're good, rational, logical thinkers. And they are clear-cut and they can, do, you know, they can just say, okay, look, let's weigh these options here. Here's the pros, here's the cons. This is not wise. Think, I, here, let me give you 15 reasons why this is not a good idea. Boom, 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 boom. Let me tell you this. Boom, 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 boom. And then you've got the Barnabases. Yeah, but if you were in his position, wouldn't you want another chance? That's the kind of guy Barnabas was. Did you know in Acts chapter 9 that when, the apostle, when, when Saul was saved by Jesus, radically on the road to Damascus, Jesus revealed himself. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And when his eyes were open, when Ananias came to him, and he began to preach about Jesus there at Damascus. Did you know that when he went to Jerusalem, the apostles wanted nothing to do with him? They wouldn't even talk with him. They didn't want to go anywhere near him. Guess who it was that brokered the peace? Barnabas. Because that's the kind of guy Barnabas was. His name was Joseph, but they called him Barnabas because he was the son of encouragement. That's the kind of guy that Barnabas was. He was gracious. He was wide-hearted, right? He said, look, I know that you've struggled, but I'm here. Paul would say, hey, I know you've struggled, so why don't you sit this one out? (laughs) Brothers and sisters, no one's wrong. No one's right or wrong in this. They're just two different perspectives. And you really need both of them within the church. And when they come together, it's a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing. It's part of the genius of God's design for the church. Our different gifts, our different personalities. But here, what's happened? It's led to a sharp disagreement. The sparks have flown here. Right? The band's not getting back together. It's broken up. (laughs) Barnabas and Paul are now going their separate ways. Again, these men parted ways not because they had a major doctrinal disagreement, but because of a disagreement about the right mix of grace and wisdom in terms of John Mark's readiness for gospel ministry. Where are you coming down? Grace, wisdom. What's the right mix? 
Where do you come down on that dynamic? They came down on two different sides of that. Interestingly, the, everything leading up to this in chapter 15, just take a look, skim, skim over chapter 15. Everything leading up to this, chapter 1 through 35, is about disagreement and it's about doctrinal disagreement. So if you want to understand the doctrinal side of things, and this is a big doctrine, it's called justification by faith alone. Faith and works, right? The law, grace and the law. That's what they're dealing with. And you can see in those opening verses of chapter 15 really how, uh, how the church dealt with those questions of this, uh, that some in the church were raising. But this is not that. And that isn't what we're talking about this morning. What we're talking about is when we disagree with one another. When we disagree with one another on issues, situations, decisions, policies, I don't know, people, or even secondary doctrinal matters. Teachings, but they're secondary or, or third level kinds of things. It's when we disagree on those things, things that are not the what we believe basis for our unity in Christ together. So with that in mind, think about what we can learn from this. Acts does a wonderful job at giving us so many great examples of courageous faith, of, of bold living for Christ, of, of, of trusting God and seeing Him just show up in amazing ways, powerful ways, the spread of the gospel, the growth of the church. But Acts gives us so many great examples. We could just run through a list of lots and lots of names. This is one of those places where we want to stop and say, wait a minute, Luke's recorded this, and I think there's something important. I believe Luke, inspired by the Spirit, felt like there was something important for us to take away from this. So let me give you a, a few takeaways for us. First of all, it's important for us to remember that when we disagree with one another, something strange is not happening. Right? Something strange is not happening. This reminds me of when Peter, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, says to them, Brothers, sisters, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal that has come upon you. What, why is he telling them that? Because Jesus had made it, clear, made it clear over and over again. If I suffer, you're going to suffer. If the world hates me, they're going to hate you as well. Right? He just told us time and time again about suffering. Paul, right, chapter 14, what was the encouragement, the little bit of news they had for the churches that they were building up? They were basically teaching them, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's all the information we have about how they were being built up. You're going to suffer for Christ. So Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come among you. In fact, rejoice that you've been counted worthy to suffer for his name. What were Paul and Barnabas doing in Acts 16? When they got beaten with rods by the public officials of that city, they ended up in the jail. And what were they doing there? Commiserating about their wounds and their bruises? What were they doing? Singing praise to God. They were, they, and, and, and just like the apostles who earlier in Acts chapter 5 had been imprisoned, right? And they, they talked about... They, 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 they were rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. 
Same thing. But the principle is the same. Don't be surprised. This is the idea here. Don't be surprised when we disagree. When you disagree with a brother or sister. When you disagree with the, uh, something the church is doing. When you disagree with a, with a decision, a policy. When there's disagreement just at a personal level. level. Philippians chapter 4, Euodia and Syntyche, two sisters that we know from history who were having a hard time with one another. They could not get along. Paul says, man, I, I encourage them and I, I admonish them. Be reconciled to the Lord. Be on the same page in the Lord. So if someone wasn't paying close attention, back to Luke, if someone wasn't paying close attention, a good portion of the book of Acts, all these summaries about gospel advance, right, what the Holy Spirit was doing, church growth, it can make it sound like everything was rainbows and lollipops in the early church. It was like triumphant, ho-ho, everything's going great, yes. But that was certainly not the case. We know about persecution from outside the church. That's abundantly clear in Acts, isn't it? Persecution from outside the church. Whether it be Gentiles or Jews doing the persecuting. But we also, we also heard about, chapter 5, deceptive church members who then suffered the wrath of God. Ananias and Sapphira. There was the, in the next chapter, there was the great widow's food distribution controversy. Remember that little historical footnote? Acts chapter 6. There was criticism, as I alluded to, and conflict about new Gentile believers in chapters 11 and then in chapter 15 at the beginning. And, and, and then there is this, this more personal disagreement, this break in our main text between Paul and Barnabas. And there'll be other things coming, on, coming along in the book of Acts. And we could add to all of this the letters of the New Testament. Many of these letters written to the churches mentioned in the book of Acts. The churches that were established by the Apostle Paul and, and, and maybe Barnabas, some of those. We could add those letters into the mix. And, and you can, when you read those letters, it is abundantly clear. Letters written to churches, letters written to individual believers. It is abundantly clear that God's children don't always play nicely with one another. Just time after time you can read that, right? Be reconciled. Forgive one another as you have been forgiven. Love one another. Be patient with one another. Bear with one another. Oh, seek to maintain unity. Be of one mind. Be of one accord. And he's just over and over and over. And that's apart from highlighting specific kinds of struggles, right? Well, we've heard it said that someone has his father's wife. Ah, what? Like you could just go through lists of things that were going on within these churches. We know that if there are human beings present in any sort of community, even redeemed human beings, there will always be disagreement and conflict. If you don't believe that, if you, if you haven't really thought much about that, you need to accept that right now so that you will not be surprised when it happens. That you can expect it, uh, but, but I can do one better than that. That you would be prepared for it. Because that's what we have here. That's what we're given in God's Word. A chance to prepare ourselves. As most of you know, there are no perfect churches, are there? There are no perfect churches. I like what the 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon said on this. He said, 
if I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. At the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I'd become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. Isn't it wonderful? In addition to acknowledging such things, right? Just being wide-eyed and clear-headed about it, saying, I should expect that when we are in life together as a church community, we're going to have disagreements with one another. Gosh, if guys like Paul and Barnabas had disagreements, of course we're going to have disagreements about issues. They're going to come up. We know that. So in addition to just acknowledging such things, expecting that they will come along, preparing ourselves spiritually, mentally, relationally, emotionally for those things. Here's a second point. Even when we disagree with one another, number two, we should remain engaged in God's work. Even when we disagree with one another, we should remain engaged in God's work. Sure, right? Without that first point I just mentioned to you, some might believe that disagreements among us mean the church is hopelessly broken. If if somebody weren't aware that disagreements were just kind of part and parcel with any kind of human community, but they came to church and they were kind of expecting like with uh, like rose-colored lenses that, oh, everybody in church has got to be nice, right? It it can't be like I've seen out there. Well, actually, it can be like that, right? It can be like that. So if they come into a church expecting one thing and they see that there's some struggle or strain, there's some disagreements, they might think, well, I can't be at this church. This church is broken, right? There's something wrong with this church. I need to go find another church that's not broken like this because clearly these people aren't doing it right. Well, no. If you can understand that, right? If we set that aside, that idea, the church is not hopelessly broken when disagreements arise. We still need to guard our own hearts against excuse making here's what i mean by that excuse making you see we're just the kind of creatures who will take ministry disagreement in the church or disagreement with another believer over some non-essential belief and turn it into an excuse to sit on the sidelines that's the kind of creatures we are right at different times in different ways all of us can play that part We can take some issue and say, well, because this is going on, I'm not going to be engaged. I'm not, I I don't, I'm going to, I'm going to sit until this is resolved, right? Uh, We just don't see eye to eye on this. Therefore, we can't do anything until we get this resolved. But just think, what if Paul and Barnabas had that mindset? What if they had that mindset? What do you mean you don't want to go with me? Well, I don't want to go with you if we're not taking John Mark. What do you mean we're not taking, wait a minute. We don't have, we're not taking John Mark. You, what, you, what is this, revisionist history? You remember what he did to us in Pamphylia. He ditched us. You can't rely on this guy. Oh, but he's different. Paul, come on. And they're you know, doing this. And if they felt like they could not see eye to eye on that, and they had this mindset, it was an excuse to sit on the sidelines, what would they be doing? Going back to the church at Antioch? Okay, I guess the new committee for... Missionary membership enrollment is going to be formed and we'll let the committee meet six times once a month over the next six months and they'll hammer out some policies 
and bullet points, and on the end, have a little panel that will decide who, in fact, is able to go on mission trips with us, and we'll have a wonderfully detailed and in-depth application process, a screening process. We'll do a background check. We'll do a resume, all of this stuff. Guess what's not happening at that time, if that's going on? Paul and Barnabas aren't preaching the gospel. Right? They put themselves on the sidelines because, oh, well, we don't see eye to eye. There's a disagreement here. No, 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 no. For these men, for these men, they were personally motivated, weren't they? By their own faith. It wasn't a church program that drove them to be involved in ministry. It was a passion for the person of Jesus Christ. A personal passion for the person of Jesus Christ. They owned that. Fire burned in them. Not conformity to some church program. They didn't need all the T's crossed. They didn't need all the I's dotted. Not everything had to work out for them. It was a commitment, a personal commitment to the work of ministry. So if someone says to you, well, I disagree with you. That's not how I would reach out to my neighbor. Don't let that keep you from reaching out to your neighbor. If a brother or sister disagree with with who you want to include in a small group, in a core group, right? And no consensus can be reached. Don't let that keep you from meeting with others around the word of God. Though such disagreements should be handled absolutely with humility, with grace, with wisdom, and maybe wise counsel from the outside, they should never, ever be allowed to sabotage the call of Christ on your life. Does that make sense? So when they did not, dis- when they did not agree with one another, we don't know... Okay, uh, uh, To be a fly in that room, that would be wonderful, right? Be a fly on the wall to hear these guys, how they had this sharp disagreement. Like Luke says, it was such a sharp disagreement that they couldn't even go out together on the mission anymore. So it was serious. But to be thinking about that, to to say, when they got to that point to say, hey, this is not happening. We're We're not coming together, right? We've been talking here for three hours. We're not making any headway on this. I still believe what I believe. You still believe what you believe. But what we both can agree on is that the Lord has called us to preach the gospel. And they were ready to step out in faith and go serve and build up and strengthen the churches. What a beautiful reminder in terms of disagreement. Number three, just a third takeaway when we look at Paul and Barnabas, what we're learning today in this same work of ministry that we've been given, each of us personally and us as a church corporately, Third, when we disagree with one another, we can trust that ultimately God is still at work. So this is that opposite of the church is hopelessly broken. If in fact we disagree with one another, oh, the church is hopelessly broken. We can't, no, no. This is the opposite. Even when we feel broken and messy in our relationships with one another, we can trust God is sovereign. He is carrying out his purposes. He will accomplish, right? He is the God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So says Ephesians chapter 1. We can trust that He is at work. How wonderful that God here sovereignly used this difficult split 
to send out not one, but two teams. Now two teams have gone out instead of just one. Okay, wait a minute. Wow. Barnabas and John Mark went by sea, right, by boat to Cyprus. And Paul and Silas went by land through Syria and then Cilicia, probably through Tarsus. That's where Tarsus is, maybe through Paul's hometown, back into Central Asia Minor. They went by land, but they both went for the same exact reason, to glorify God and exalt Jesus by building up these new churches and by spreading the gospel. They both went for the same reason. So in the same way, brothers and sisters, though it is often uncomfortable and maybe even painful, these disagreements, and I don't want to minimize that at all, uncomfortable, difficult, right? Even though that's the case when we have these disagreements. And though we should never use God's sovereignty to justify impure motives or bad behavior. Watch out for that, please. Well, yeah, I said that, but God's going to work it all out in the end. Uh, No, you need to apologize, (laughs) right? Don't use the sovereignty of God because he actually redeemed the situation. Don't use it to like back off of your responsibility or own, take ownership of how badly you behaved in that situation if in fact that's what it was like. So though we do not want to ever use God's sovereignty to justify impure motives or bad behavior, we can rest assured that after we've done what we can do to resolve a disagreement, our impasse together, our impasse with one another cannot stop God from carrying out that supernatural work of advancing the gospel that we talked about a number of weeks ago. That He is at work and nothing will stop Him. Not my failures, not your selfishness, not our division, none of it. It will not stop Him. That should give us assurance, brothers and sisters, that in the midst of our disagreements, we can stop and say, God's name be praised. We want to seek that. We want to, be, we want to be anchored by this truth. Brothers and sisters, when we truly accept truths like these, then disagreements won't divide us. God willing, they will actually drive us back in humility to our agreements. Disagreements should drive us back to our agreements in Christ with one another. Listen to how one writer describes that that contentious 1529 meeting in that castle in Germany. (laughs) At the end of the debate, Luther and Zwingli finally wept together. And they asked forgiveness from one another for the harsh words they'd spoken. They even sat down to eat together at the prince's table who was hosting the time. They didn't take communion together. Their views of the supper, in, that, in their views of the supper, they still remained divided. But how beautiful to hear that the Spirit of Christ and the grace of Christ led them to that unity and embrace and weeping and confession of sin To say, you are my brother in Christ. You are my brother in Christ. 
on a similar note, in addition to positive references that we find to Barnabas in Paul's later letters. Now, just real quick, the mention that you have of Barnabas in, in the main text there is the last time that you'll hear about Barnabas in the book of Acts. He will not be mentioned again. But we can find references to him in the letters of Paul. And all of those are very positive references. In fact, we find references as well to John Mark, the original source of the, the, source of the original contention, right? Again, Paul wrote to the Colossians. I, I showed you a part of this verse. He wrote about Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. But here's the rest of the verse. Concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. That's Paul writing 15 years or so later, 13 to 15 years later, after the sharp disagreement and the split. Right? This is him writing to the Colossian church. And then, several years after that, we read this note to Timothy. He says, Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Isn't that wonderful? What does that tell us? It tells us that Paul did not forever label Mark as a bad bet. That he did not forever put Mark in a category as an unreliable fellow worker. There's no indication at all that he was bitter or that he held on to this sad episode in, in an unhealthy way. And Mark did in fact grow as a servant of Jesus. He did grow in his faith. Maybe it was that trip with Barnabas that helped him along the way in developing his courage and fortitude in his ministry skills. We don't know. All we know is that 15 years or so after that, Paul is writing saying, get Mark and bring him to me. He is, he's going to be a valuable asset to my team. I need him here. Right? Wow, how encouraging. How encouraging. We don't know what, how these things came about. What we do know is that God was at work in and through these servants, even through the sharp disagreement that arose in Acts 15. But way of grace, it was their shared agreements. Not a sharp disagreement. It was their shared agreements about the lordship and love of Christ, about grace, about the priority of the kingdom work about the authority of the Word of God, about the unity of the Spirit. It was these agreements that held them fast and helped them find a way forward. That's what's to be celebrated. That's what's to be held on to that will anchor us in these times. So whether you are struggling now or this simply prepares you for what may come, what will eventually come, brothers and sisters, Let's remember that disagreements among us are par for the course. They've been there and they will be there. But it's our shared agreements that hold us fast in this. And we want to keep in mind the things that not only we've heard this morning, we see in the example of Paul and Barnabas, but the things that the letters, as we said, tell us over and over again about the unity of the Spirit, about bearing with one another in love, about forgiving one another and showing, extending grace to one another in the same way that grace has been extended to us. And when those hard times come, when those disagreements come, let's stay the course. Right? They're part for the course, but let's stay the course when they come. Just as 
Christ did for us. He stayed the course, Hebrews chapter 12. He ran the race that was before Him. And, and what, it, what was the result? He brought us forgiveness for our frailties, for our divisiveness and our conflict. He brought us forgiveness to unite us in grace. So yes, let's stay the course in light of all these examples that God has abundantly provided for us. Paul and Barnabas, but best of all, Jesus Christ, who stayed the course in grace to accomplish the Father's will. Let that be us, whether we're agreeing or disagreeing at any particular time. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.